Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this message. Because of you, O Lord, who you are, what you have provided. And Lord, you've opened our hearts to you, and you've enabled us to see you. You've enabled us, Father, to understand your truth. And it's because of your grace, Lord, that you are alive in our hearts. So, Father, day by day and moment by moment, we pray that you would help us to live as you would have us to live. We pray, Father, that moment by moment and day by day, our actions, our words would bring glory and honor to you. We pray, Father, that you would take us who are weak in faith and that you would stir that up and you would strengthen us and enable us to trust you all the more. And so, Father, as we've come this day, we've come to honor you. We've come, Lord, to acknowledge our sin and to acknowledge our need for you, for your forgiveness, for your grace, and for the imparting of your spirit to enable us to live in a way that honors you, glorifies you, testifies to your working in our midst. And so now, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, as our teachers turn the attention of the young people to your word, Father, that we would be moved by your truth and that life would be the result and that it would be more abundant. So, Father, continue to use these moments to draw us close to you and to help us, Father, to make you known. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Now, if you have your Bible, Psalm 83, if I can just share a few things here in this passage. You know, as I was preparing for this and reading all kinds of materials that you can find online, it's very interesting that how often Psalm 83 is ignored, how little there is about this psalm in many of the commentators and many of the resources that I was looking at. One of the reasons for that, I think, as I've read some other materials on this passage, is when you look at all the nations that are made reference to, the commentators tell us it's very difficult to try to find a point in time 
that Asaph, the writer, must be talking about. Because up until our present day and age, the alliance of all these nations has never occurred. Commentators sometimes try to relate this passage to the time of Jehoshaphat or to the time of the Maccabees. But even when they do, they say there are problems with locating the events about which the psalmist is writing in either one of those periods of time in Israel's history. Because it's not complete. Some of these nations are left out in those particular moments of Israel's history during the reign of Jehoshaphat or during the time of the Maccabees. It is for that reason that some, I'm not even sure if many, but some believe this is really a prophetic utterance that Asaph has given. Because there's nothing that comes to bear on this passage that has occurred in the past. Now, Asaph is a marvelous writer of the Psalms. He's written 12 Psalms. I think Psalms 73 to 83 and then Psalm 50 are his Psalms. And this is quite a remarkable psalm indeed. It's a prayer. It's a prayer for Israel's defense. So take a look at this. It says in verse 1, Asaph writes, O God, do not keep silent. Be not quiet, O God. Be not still. Now there's a couple of neat things right at the outset of this passage. The first is the way in which Asaph makes reference to the Lord. In verse 1, he uses the Hebrew word Elohim. The word that's used for God as creator. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. It's a word that denotes God's power and might, as most of the commentators tell us. Right after he uses the word Elohim in verse 1, the second time in English, my translation says, O God, be not silent. You have a second word for God. Here it's the word El, the short form of Elohim. It's almost as if he wants to emphasize the power and might of God in his prayer. Indeed, he's going to pray that God in his power and might delivers his people. So he starts the psalm by speaking about O Elohim. The one who is El, that one who is full of power and might. Later in the psalm, he uses another name for God. If you look uh, around verse 16, and then again in verse 18, he uses the sacred name of God. He says, cover their faces with shame so that men will seek your name, O Lord. You notice it's all in capital letters. That's the sacred, unpronounceable name for God. Sometimes we refer to it as Yahweh, sometimes Jehovah, though I'm not very happy with with that. But it's the sacred name of God. So he makes reference to God as Elohim. He makes reference to God as El. He makes reference to God with regard to the sacred name of God, which denotes the fullness of his character and who he is in all of his fullness. Very difficult to way to try to convey what is meant to be conveyed by the use of the sacred name of God. And then at the very close, he makes reference to the Lord as El Elyon. You alone are the most high over all the earth. So right away as we read the psalm, Asaph wants to draw our attention to the nature and character of God. Because what he's going to ask God to do is going to require him in all of his might, in all of his grandeur, 
with regard to the fullness of his character, not least of which is his covenant promise to Israel to be their protector and defender, the one who is the most high and therefore no one can uh, thwart whatever his intentions or desires are. When we think about what's going on in Israel today, these are great caricatures and great names for God for us to be reflecting on. When you think of the things going on in your own personal life, the challenges that come to bear on who you are and what is happening, sometimes those challenges in our own personal life are financial. Sometimes things are falling apart with those who are most dear to us. They can be our children who become estranged from us for one reason or another. When we first had our kids, we had no idea that they would wander from us. We had no thought that these kids that were cuddling in our arms, that were loving with all of our might, would somehow come to a point where we would be resented by them, or maybe even resent them, be angry with them, dare I say it, even hate them. We need to call upon the Lord. The one who is El Elyon, that can turn hearts in dramatic ways. Where we can look upon those who are most difficult to look upon. And yet love them with the love of God. Forgive them with the grace of God. Receive them with the redemptive gift that God has bestowed upon us that we can bestow upon others. When our world falls apart in all these kinds of ways, whether it's financial, whether it's relational, whether it's health-wise, when I have opportunity to visit some of our own folks that find themselves in the hospital, they didn't plan to go there. They hope to avoid those kinds of places. I, not too long ago, six months or something like that, found myself one evening where my throat, I just couldn't breathe. You know, so I felt like it was swelling up on me. I couldn't get a breath. And I'm just sitting in bed. It was fairly late at night. Mary says, you better get down to the ER. I go down to the ER and I'm starting to feel a little better, but not great. Never saw a doctor, never saw anyone. They just took my name, sat me in a waiting room for two or three hours, brought me in and said, just take some Benadryl because it's not food poisoning. And then I got a bill for like 1200 bucks. You know, that's not the place I want to go, you know. Now that, now I know why I don't want to go, you know. But we find ourselves in those kinds of places where we never dreamed of. Now that I turn the corner on 59, and when I visit folks, when they find themselves in the hospital, I realize, you know, it will not be too long where I will be there too. Probably won't be too long. It'll be like that. Never thought I'd ever meet, make 60. And 80 is only 20 years away. So what will it be like? I know that may sound depressing to you. But listen, we're all headed in that direction. And none of us want to go there plan to go there, anticipate, maybe we, I'm anticipating. But the point is we can't be foolish about these things. We need El Elyon to enable to stabilize us in those kinds of places where who knows what it might be like. 
But we need God's help when our health begins to erode out from under us. And the things we've been able to do, all of a sudden, you just twist the wrong way. Yikes, what did I do? I just got up. You know. And you find that our bodies are wasting away. So when we look at our world, we need, this is what this prayer is about, deliverance from the trials and turmoils that come into our lives. Now, Asaph has particular trial and turmoil he's concerned about, but I'm just saying it doesn't matter particularly what he may be talking about. We can see how it touches all of our lives in different levels and in different ways. But look at this passage. Here's another thing about this first verse. I haven't gotten very far, but this is another neat thing. Three times he beseeches God to act. He says, first of all, don't keep silent. Second of all, do not be quiet. Thirdly, do not be still. He's saying, act in behalf of the things that I'm going to be in prayer about. Act in behalf of your people Israel. So we'll come back to Israel as we think of what's going on presently in the Gaza Strip. But as we think of what's going on there, there's all kinds of turmoils and strife going on in our own lives and existence as well. But look at verse 2. Look what he says to the Lord. See how your enemies are astir, how your foes rear their heads. But here's the neat thing. Look at verse 3. With cunning, they conspire against your people. They plot against those you cherish. And literally means your hidden ones. But notice what Asaph is pointing out. Those who are enemies of God's people are enemies of God. That's what he's saying. That's what he says in verse 2. See how your enemies, O Lord. But what is he really talking about? He's talking about the enemies of Israel that are attacking his people. Look at verse 3. They conspire against your people. There's this symmetry, this association, this connection. To be at odds with God's people is to be at odds with God himself. That's why he says to Abraham, I'll bless them that bless thee, but those that are in odds with you, I will curse them that curse thee. To have God's people as one's enemy is to have God as one's enemy. Churches across the nation, around the world, need to be very careful about their understanding of God's chosen people and their allegiance to him. It doesn't mean we agree with everything. We're all sinners. And Israel has wandered often. But ultimately, they are God's people that he has chosen for his own unique self. Those of us who are of a Jewish background, we ought not to be embarrassed by that. We ought not to feel constrained to rejoice in that. It's a great blessing, Paul tells us, to be among God's chosen people. And so I speak in the third person. But in one sense, I can speak in the first person. Be at odds with God's people, of which I am a member, is a very tenuous place to be when we read words like this. It's not to say all of God's people have been good people. There have been many wicked kings in Israel. There have been the Achans in Israel. There have been the Ananiases and Sapphires in Israel. There have been the Judas Iscariots in Israel. But it is to say as a people, as a nation, they are God's people. 
And thus to conspire against his people is to conspire against God. And this is what the, these peoples are saying. Look at verse 4. I can't help but think of what's going on presently. They say, come, let us destroy them as a nation. Now notice, these are God's cherished ones. Literally in Hebrew, hidden ones. I think two things are meant to be conveyed by that phrase. They are precious to him. You know, precious things are things you hide. And as hidden ones, they are precious to God. They are his treasured possession, scripture tells us. But not only are they precious to him, the apple of God's eye, but they also are protected by him. Why is it that all the ancient peoples of the world are gone? And yet this one ancient people still thrive, still contribute, still make a difference in our world. Because of God's protective grace that covers them. How is it that a people who have been scattered for over 2,500 years to the four corners of the earth could be regathered into their ancient homeland? and reignite their ancient language and continue, continue to contribute to the world as in a, in a blessing, in a, a contributing sort of way, not just enduring the hardships the world casts upon them, but despite that, contributing to the world with its great blessings, unless God was protecting his people. God was guiding his people. Unless the God of the universe was their God. Unless the God of the universe was the true and living God. It's amazing things to think about. All eyes are on this ancient people. We don't have all eyes on Rome. We don't have all eyes on Babylon. We don't have all eyes on the Assyrians. But all eyes are on Israel once again. And look what he says. The nations around Israel say we want to destroy them as a nation. That hasn't changed much. They say that the name of Israel would be remembered no more. And here's the thing. All of these nations Asaph mentions in this passage plot together. They form an alliance. All of these nations have never existed in an alliance in, against Israel before our own day and age. All of these nations at one time opposed Israel, but not as a collective body. And that's why I think Asaph is giving us a prophetic utterance. Notice the nations that he mentions. He mentions Edom and the Ishmaelites. Of course, Edom, Esau, the descendant of Isaac, Rebekah, the brother of Jacob, resided in the southeastern part of the land of Israel. In what is today part of Jordan, not far from Saudi Arabia. Esau means red. And when you travel down to a lot and you see the mountains across the Dead Sea, as the sun goes down because of the nature of the sandstone, it turns this crimson red. It goes through this changing of colors like reds and oranges and blues and purples. It's absolutely exquisite to watch. 
But that's what Esau's name means, red. And the land in which his people inherited and descended and settled upon was that area of what is today Jordan along the southeastern border of Israel, not far from a lot, is a re- an area of land that's characterized by redness. Really kind of neat. So you have the Edomites, you have the Ishmaelites, the descendant of Ishmael, the daughter of, of the son of Hagar, probably resided somewhere in what today might be the Sinai Peninsula. There's a difference of opinion on that. Notice Moab. Ruth came from Moab. Moab is like the area of further north of Edom, again, part of Jordan, across from the Dead Sea area, further north of that southern area known as where we talked about as Edom. And then he tells us, and the Hagarites, they're made reference, by the way, in the book of Chronicles, probably a nomadic tribe, and they're associated with an area that was settled or an area settled by the Israelites on the other side of the Jordan by Gilead. So now we're further north in what is Jordan, Syria. So you've got the Edomites in the south. You've got the Moabites near the center. You've got the Hagarites and the Ishmaelites. Ishmaelites down by the Sinai, but the Hagarites upwards east of Gilead, near what is today Syria, part of Iraq, part of Jordan. He tells us this alliance is also made up of Gibal, Gibal is an ancient name for a city known as Byblos, which is in Lebanon today. When you go up the coast of Lebanon, you've got Tyre, you've got Tyre, and then Sidon, and then Beirut, and Byblos, just a little north of Beirut. So we're talking about the Edomites, talk about the Moabites, talk about the Ishmaelites in the Sinai, talking about the Hagarites up here by Syria and Iraq, Jordan. Now he's telling us those from Gibal up north in what is today Lebanon. He mentions Amman. Amman is the capital of Jordan today. That's right in the center of Jordan. So all of that border on the immediate eastern side of Israel and up to the northeast. And now with Gibal all the way to the north of Israel. He mentions Amalek, which again was a nomadic tribe in the Sinai region. Philistia. Philistia is today the Gaza Strip. That is part of what ancient Philistia was. Gaza was its capital. You remember Samson took the gates. I mean, this is just incredible to think of. But took the gates of Gaza. Now, these gates were like 20, 30 feet tall. Who knows how thick. These were the gates into the city. And he just grab both of them off their hinges and carry them for like 20 miles just to let them know he could do it. But he just grabbed the gates and it made them then vulnerable to their enemies because now they can't protect themselves. The Philistines, Philistines are the area of Gaza. The people of Tyre, it's up in Lebanon, mentioned that already. He mentions even Assyria. Assyria is going north. Now we're into modern day Syria. And then he mentions, has joined to lend strength the descendants of Lot. The sons of Lot were Moab and Ammon. 
So what do we have? We have those nations that immediately surround the land of Israel. Asaph sees them in an alliance to confront Israel and to attack her. That's what he sees. Never in history has that ever occurred, but we're seeing it now. We're seeing Hezbollah in Lebanon. We're seeing Assad in Syria. We see ISIS is knocking on the doors of Jordan. There's always been this tension with the Egyptians, and certainly now with Hamas in Gaza and the Palestinian Authority right in the West Bank. What Asaph writes about here is what we see for the first time in the 20th century since Israel became a state in 1948. And then you see the word Selah, which means pause for a moment. Because remember, this is a prayer. He's just said, O Elohim, O El, do not be quiet, do not be silent, act in behalf of what I'm going to pray about because Israel's enemies are around her borders and are surrounding her. Pause for a moment, think about that as I now come before you and speak about their need. Look at verse 8 and 9. He then brings to bear what God has done in the past to deliver Israel. He says is a sort of like a precedent for him to do some things at present. So he says, remember when you destroyed the Midians, the Midianites. He mentions, as you did to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon. Asaph is such a marvelous writer. He combines these two moments in the book of Judges. When Gideon destroyed the Midianites with 300 men. When Ruth and Boaz destroyed the Canaanites up in the Jezreel Valley because of the rain that plunged the Canaanites into despair because of their chariots. He mentions, make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb. These are some of the leaders of the Midianites that Gideon destroyed. All their princes, again, like Zeba and Zalmunna. Read Judges chapter 7 and chapter 8. You'll read about these men, Midianites, that ultimately came to their demise. He's saying, due to these surrounding nations around Israel, what you did to the Midianites by, through the hand of Gideon, what you did to the Canaanites through the hands of Boaz. Notice what the, the purpose is, the motive. We want the land. So now we ask the question, why is it that the Palestinian administration, Hamas, why is it that these groups cannot make some kind of concessions to Israel and live at peace? If all the concrete that was brought into Gaza had been used for schools and hospitals rather than for all the different tunnels. They said about two or three million dollars on concrete was spent on each one of the tunnels that were built. And there's something over like 30, 40 of those tunnels that they're aware of. Imagine if those millions of dollars were used for the benefit of the inhabitants of Gaza and not the intention to destroy the people of Israel. How much better their lives would be today. We wouldn't be seeing people living in refugee camps. You wouldn't be seeing people living in squalor. 
You wouldn't see a people whose life expectancy is so low. You would see a people that would be thriving like they're thriving in the land of Israel. So why is it that they cannot do this? Asaph has told us. They want their land. And they want Israel off of it. There is no way that there's going to be any kind of concessions or any kind of peace agreements unless there's an agreement to Israel's existence. But Asaph is telling us, do not delude yourselves. Their intention is the land and the destruction of the people. So what does he pray? And look what he prays. Verse 13, he says, make them like tumbleweed, a specific type of shrub that grows in Israel. And then part of it breaks off from its roots and the wind begins to blow it on the ground. Like a tumbleweed here, but not exactly. He says, make them like a tumbleweed, make them like chaff, make them like a fire that consumes a forest or a flame like the mountains. Look at how it builds up. One, make them like a tumbleweed and chaff. But then may they be burned, destroyed, brought to an end. He says, pursue them with your tempest. Terrify them with your storm. And what does he hope as a consequence? That they would see the folly of their ways. In verse 16, that they might be shamed before the world. And that they would seek the name of the Lord. Now, that doesn't always mean salvation. Sometimes those phrases simply means submission. Paul uses it that way in Philippians. Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Yeshua is Lord to the glory of the Father. It doesn't mean everyone's going to be saved. But it does mean everyone will be submitted to Yeshua as Lord. What he's praying here is that as the destruction is unleashed upon Israel's enemies, may they be subjugated to the true God. May they realize the folly of their own gods and acknowledge that it is El Elyon, that it is Elohim, that it is El, that it is Yahweh, I deny. He is not only the true God, He is the only God. And therefore, it is only to him that we should bow our knee. It is only because of him that we should recognize Israel for who she is. It is only because of him that we who submit ourselves to the Lord do so joyfully, willfully, and we desire his goodness. And so he says, may they ever be ashamed and dismayed. May they perish in disgrace. Let them know that you, whose name is the Lord, Adonai, Hashem, that you alone are the Most High over Israel, but over all the earth. This is a good prayer for us to pray in our own day and age. It's a good prayer to pray when your own life is in turmoil. Lord, bring that which is bringing destruction to my life to an end. 
and cause me, Lord, to see you for who you are. El Elyon, the Most High God. Father in heaven, we thank you for Asaph and this marvelous song. Lord, we learn that you are all-powerful. You are sovereign. And therefore, Father, it is to you that we can come in any kind of need. It is to you that we come in behalf of Israel this morning. And we pray that you might do as Asaph prays you would do when this alliance comes to bear. May you bring it to naught. May you thwart their intentions. May you bring them to shame. And may you stand supreme as the living God of the universe. Father, we pray that we who are your children might know of your truth. That you truly are in control of all things. That you truly can bring to bear your will in each one of our own personal lives. And so we pray that we might trust you to that end. May we know you as El Elyon, the Most High God, and may we willfully bow before you. And now, Father, this morning we have opportunity to celebrate what your Son has done in our behalf. You have given your life, O Lord, a ransom for many. And we pray, Father, with great thanksgiving for the redemptive grace that you've brought into our own lives. We are your children, and you love us with an eternal love. And so, Father, we honor you and we praise you And we are grateful for what Messiah has done. May his redemptive work touch the hearts of each and every one who is here. And if there's anyone who doesn't know you, I pray, Father, they may find you as Lord and Savior. We pray for our family members that don't know you. May you open their hearts to you, even as we open our heart to you this morning, as we reflect upon our great need for you and the great provision you have provided. So, Lord, we bless you, and we thank you, and we give you all praise, honor, and glory. We pray in Yeshua's name. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.